Amen. If you have your notes, we're on lesson three here on Wednesday night. We've been talking about the test you have to pass in order to get to your purpose. And um, we started off, I don't remember. Anybody remember what test one was? Oh, you're going to make me look back in my notes. Come on, Hayward, what was it? The keep your mouth shut test. That's right. It's the closed mouth test. That was one of Joseph's problems. He did not know when it was time. Just because God said something to you doesn't mean it has to come out. All right? Sometimes it's just for you to know. What was the second test? you remember that? The justice, injustice. Yeah, the injustice test. For those of us that have ever experienced anything unfair in life, as hard as it may be to believe, God will use unfairness and injustice for his purposes because Romans 8.28 says that God will cause all things to work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, I wish I could tell you there were just two tests, but there are at least three, and I know I plan to teach you at least seven more after this. These are tests. You say, how do I, how do I move beyond in, in, in my life? How do I get going in life? You pass the test. And that's how you begin to move forward is that there will be these tests and um, they'll come up at all different points of time. And I only printed 10. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not saying this just, you know, I don't know that there's not 50 tests. I, I know of a few tests that I've had to take that I'm not necessarily going to share with you. Maybe if I don't share it, you won't have to take it. But nonetheless, he probably has some especially designed tests just for you. I, uh, I'll never forget uh, when I went through graduate school in order to graduate. Of course, you did all the normal things you do. You got to write your papers and you pass your classes and you do all that you have to do. And then they give you a final what they call an oral examination. And what they do is you sit before three professors and they got your transcripts from college and from graduate school and they open them up and anything is fair game. They just, I mean, how do, I don't remember. I don't remember. I mean, when you put me in a class at 7.30 in the morning, I'm lucky to remember what classroom it's in, much less, you know, what the uh, professor was saying at the time. But... But what they do is they know you, they saw what you've taken by way of uh, information and classes, and then it's just like they design this exam just for you. So, you know, we'd always come out of those examinations, and, uh, you know, they'd only, they could only do like three, maybe four a day because they were a three-hour examination. So, you know, they could only do a couple a day. But when you would get out, your phone would ring that night from all the guys that were scheduled to take their orals, and they would call you up and say, what'd they ask you, what'd they ask you? And so we'd always share it with each other, but it never did us any good because you'd go in there and it was designed just for you. And so, uh, you know, that's a little how God works. You know, you may want to ask me some things and maybe I can give you a little wisdom or insight. You may ask Trace, you could give you a little insight. You may ask a friend, Christian friend, they may give you a little insight, but sometimes you're in the middle of a test and you, you just got to pass it just because of what God has, has put in your life, his word, and, and you've got to get a hold of it for your own. So, so hopefully this will help you, and, and it may not give you all the answers to what you're facing, but it may answer a couple things here and there. But tonight we're going to talk about the servant test, the servant test. 
In Genesis 39, verse 1, we're still using Joseph as our springboard. We're going to use several other people as well in the servant test. I want to show you, I got another new Bible. This is one of those hardback. I got, I got that leather one, you know, that little cheap Bible I bought that already has the thumb tabs in it, but those, that paper, you know, it sticks. And when you got one hand on a microphone and another hand flipping your Bible, it just, it's not conducive to doing that. And so I also, I knew that was going to be the case, so I got me a hardback uh, Spirit-Filled Life Bible because I really like these. And, um, you know, it opens right up. The pages don't stick together. It doesn't look as cool as a leather-bound, does it? I mean, it's almost like when you use a leather-bound, there's another level of authority that you have (laughs) when you bring that. cheat. Do they think I'm saying cheap? No, it wasn't a cheap Bible. I will assure you that thing was not cheap by way of money. I'm talking a cheat Bible. If you want to know what a cheat, cheat, like you're a cheater. Really? Did you think I was saying cheap Bible? Cheap? Oh man. No, man. That thing cost an arm and a leg. (laughs) I mean, the word of God may be free, but not at books a million. I'll tell you that. Cheat Bible, cheat, T, cheat, cheater Bible. You see, what's a cheater Bible? I used to make, this is terrible. I'm just telling on myself. But, you know, there are some Bibles that have the notches, you know, in the end. And so that some of them have the thumb notches that you can stick your hand in, or some have the tabs that come out that you can just literally find it. And I used to call that a cheat Bible because you didn't have to learn the books of, your, of the Bible. You just cheated by looking at your tabs. Well, I, you know, but you, you know, do <laughs> you got a cheap Bible? <laughs> Look at all these cheap Bibles out here. All right. I'm not saying, I'm just making fun. It's not, there's still God's word. I'm just, I'm just, don't be, you know, whatever you do, don't be offended. Please don't, please don't be offended. <laughs> anyway, I had to get one because I got, it was new, thin, it was, it was large and I couldn't, and my fingers wouldn't get, you know. You know, Bible's like an old friend, and so, all right, I know, I'm, you're saying, get to the lesson, Pastor, okay. Well, I just thought it would be important. You noticed I got a new Bible. Genesis 39. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. Isn't that, isn't that great to know? You're in a pit. You're sold into slavery. You're fixing to go into Potiphar's house, and you're going to be a servant. Isn't it good to know that the Lord's still with you? The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. I just love this verse because it just turns on its head everything we think success is. And every now and then, you just need to be reminded of that. Joseph is going down, he, you know, he shot his mouth off to his brothers, a dysfunctional family, they're irritated, they fake his death, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery, he goes to Potiphar's house, he's in bondage, and the Bible says that he is a successful man. Boy, you better be careful as to what you define success as, because what you think is successful and what God thinks is successful are two totally different things. Verse 3, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Everybody say served him. If you want to find favor in the sight of the Lord, you're going to have to learn how to serve. 
Sometimes we don't like serving, but you'll find God's favor in serving. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Now, again, I'm just telling you, this is, this is the way it works. Everything's theory until it's put into practice. You can say to yourself, well, I'm a servant of the Lord. Well, you're not a servant of the Lord until you learn how to serve somebody. And when you serve somebody, then you become a servant of the Lord. That's where all these things are fleshed out. So he found favor and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. Now, Joseph had a great destiny. If you have your notes, I'm going to take just a minute and read to you. But in order to be fit to rule, he had to be fit to serve first. I've often said this. If you can't, if you can't rule in a kitchen cleaning up dirty dishes, you'll never rule owning the restaurant. Are you following me? If you can't rule doing something menial, you'll never be a ruler in anything greater. Uh, you know, that's why the Lord said even with church leadership, he said that, that you look for those who can... We're not talking about perfect people now. This is important. Not perfect. No, one, no one's perfect. But there needs to be a, a, a dominion or rulership, Paul said, that exists over one's house, or why would God give you rulership in the house of God? If your personal house is a mess, why would he want to import that into his house? Well, he wouldn't. And so to be fit to rule, he had to be fit to serve first. It's important for a person to understand the challenges of the people they might eventually give leadership to. You know, I don't know that I'm going to tell these stories, but many of you know my story of spending so many years being a custodian at a grade school. And I can remember those years. Trace would come see me at night, and I'd just whine and cry and complain, and I don't want to do this, but i got to work to pay bills, and this isn't what I'm called to do, and and I didn't know what was going on until later on in life, and much later in life. I... I can't help but walk into a store or a building, and the first thing I'll begin to do is I'll notice the tile. I'll notice the carpet. I'll notice things being clean or not. And then I'll think about the person that has to do that. I'll start thinking about, I wonder when they do this. I wonder what, if they have to come in in the graveyard shift. Or, and, and, it, and it completely changes my perspective on those that have to serve. We just went to a great uh, minister's conference and the, the gentleman, his name is Raymond Goodman. He's just a nice, kind-hearted guy. And he's the one that puts the whole thing together for Pastor Rod. Pastor Rod calls him Brains. And, and so we all know him as Brains. But, but he's the one that gets the hotel, sets it all up, makes sure everything's there, carts the water. I mean, he just the whole behind-the-scenes thing is Raymond. And I always make it a point whenever I see Raymond to look at Raymond and say, I just want you to know, man, this whole thing went great, and I know a lot of it's you. Because truth is, a lot of it is him. I mean, Pastor Rod's a great guy. Couldn't do it without him. And, and, and it just, it, that's why you serve. I mean, you don't, you don't understand. I mean, I, I, I feel for the people that work in the nursery. I'll tell you why. It's because when I was a staff member at a church running a Bible college, I still had to take my turn in the nursery. So I, I can remember that, and I feel for those in the nursery. Now, I know some of you are saying, then why do you talk so long, Pastor? Why are you so long-winded? All right, I'm not feeling for you at the moment, but, but I understand. I understand what's going on. That's why God sends you places that you say to yourself, why am I here? It may be for the simple reason that you're going to give leadership over people who may be in those positions, and you need to know 
how they feel. Because the minute you don't know how they feel is the minute you become a poor authority. All right, we're not even through the first two sentences here. In some ways, serving in more menial tasks can be compared to paying the dues of the kingdom. Can you serve in a menial task and still be faithful and of a good spirit? Are you willing to trust God and work your hardest at things that may be beneath your skill level or calling? The only occupations where a person starts out at the top is ditch digging and grave digging. God uses opportunities of serving in order to evaluate the true motives, the work ethic, and commitment to his purposes. Now, you've heard me mention on another occasion, R.T. Kendall, who pastored Westminster Chapel, just a nice, humble, soft-hearted man, has a great quote. He may have taken it from someone else. But he said, the worst thing that can happen to a man or a woman is to succeed before they're ready. It's, it's, it's that old statement of if your dad were to throw you the car keys and you're about 10 years old and you get your destiny to drive, but you're nowhere near ready to turn the ignition on in that car. And, and if you took off in that car, instead of being a blessing, it'd kill you. And so we need to understand that sometimes we need to do some even menial serving tasks in order that we can begin to be forged and formed for the greater things that God has ahead of us. Is it not true? Come on, let's just go through the people in the Bible. What did, think of what David did before he got to be king. He, he, he watched sheep in the sheep field. And is it not true that while he was in the sheep field watching sheep, it says that he killed a bear and he killed a lion, Right. Now, can you imagine the day the bear shows up? I don't know if he wrestled the thing or he took, I'm sure he probably took the sling is probably what he did. Killed the bear, took the sling, killed the lion. Well, what was happening at the time? David's going, what? I'm out here with stinky sheep running off lions and bears. Nobody knows what's going on. Who cares what's going on? Dad won't even call me in when a prophet comes to dinner. I mean, I am out here in obscurity all by myself. Why am I doing this? And the whole time God's watching him and God's planning an event with a guy named Goliath and he just got David warmed up on a lion and a bear. So when he saw Goliath, he was the only one really ready to take him on despite the armies of Israel being there. Keep these things in mind. In my own personal life, I'll just tell you, I I was saved at 18. God called me a few months later. I often said he got me when I was dumb and stupid and I didn't know what I was saying yes to. Uh, Nobody in my household had been in the ministry. I really didn't know what the the behind-the-scenes life was like in the ministry. God just called me and I wanted to be obedient, so I said yes. If he'd have waited until just a few years ago, I'd have wrestled with him. Because you go through the aches and the pains. That's why a lot of times preachers' kids don't respond to the call of God because they've watched mom and dad in the house. And, and they've struggled and they don't want that. They know, they know if they say yes to God, what they're signing up for. That's like, I really do admire my children because they've watched a lot of horrific things, but yet they've still said yes to God. And I thank God for that. That wasn't mom and dad as much as that was God just keeping their hearts soft. But I was just young, dumb and ignorant and I didn't know. And God just caught me that way. Probably chuckled when he got me and I said, yes. Kevin said yes, and the Lord goes, (laughs) he has no idea what's fixing to happen. Well, I don't, good, bad, blessing, I don't know how you define it, but I'm just going to tell you, those early years, there were a lot of wonderful, amazing things that happened. God opened doors. I got to go places and talk to crowds, and I just, I did some pretty incredible things, probably the first five, six 
years of, of being called and being in the ministry. Just things that were, that, that I was, I didn't know anything. It was amazing. I didn't know anything. And people call me, want to come speak. And I said, I don't know anything. I'm not sure. I look, I think back to some of those sermons and I'm not even sure they were right doctrinally. I mean, it just, but God was opening these doors. I met my wife. I mean, that's a pretty cool deal. I mean, just God blessed me in amazing ways. But I'm going to tell you something about my life. And that is, I got too many things too fast, too quick, and it did me more damage than good. So what does God do? Well, he does a lot like Joseph. He takes you through some processes because he, he is more concerned about your character and you beginning to reflect the essence of Christ than he is about getting you to a place that you think you need to be. Do you understand that God tomorrow, if he so desired, could just snap his finger, he could make all the doors open that you would need, and you could step into the most amazing ministry, the most amazing career, the most amazing job. He could, he, he could, is it not true? He could just like that, and you would be there. That is of no concern to God. His greatest concern is working his nature in you. He's not looking for just a bunch of destiny. He's looking for people who reflect his character and his nature in the earth. And the whole time, you know, I, I, I just know people and I know myself. And I wrote down here, does the human heart really have the capacity to evaluate its readiness for destiny? Do you really think that? I, I just, I don't think so anymore. I know there are times I personally thought I knew I'm ready. Heck yeah, I'm ready. Dude, I've been ready for years. My middle name's ready. I was born ready. Well, I'm just telling you, I was full of it. I'll just tell you something. You probably are too. If I say me first, then it doesn't hurt quite as bad if I say you. In Matthew chapter 20, there are two guys, you're going to know the story, who, who were convinced they were ready. Oh, they were convinced. They, oh, your mom, mom was helping them along. They're ushering them. You know, James and John, verse 20, Matthew 20, the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, uh, came to Jesus, kneeling down to ask and asking something from him. And he said, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right, the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus said, you don't even know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said, listen to him, they said to him, we are able. Uh, now you all chuckle now because you know what exact, you got the revelation. We got the end of the story. But think about this for just a second. We're going, Lord, Lord, do this. Promote me. Open the door. Oh, cause this thing go. I'm, I, I am so ready. And the Lord says, are you sure you're ready? Oh, I am ready. Do you understand how the angels are chuckling right now? Your personal angels are going. Now listen, this is what he said. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. To sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it is prepared for my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. They're just like Joseph's brothers. 
They'd heard that there, there were potentially two among them that were going to be elevated before they were, and they were irritated by it. And they're sitting there saying to themselves, they're looking at each other as well. Now, they didn't say it out loud. James and John did. But you know they're amongst themselves going, I can drink the cup. Why do they just get to drink the cup? I can drink his cup. I can be baptized with his baptism. Well, pretty much they all will be. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God uses serving in order to qualify one for rulership. Even Jesus in Philippians 2, it says, verses 7 and 8, it says that Jesus, who being in the form of God, now think about this, Jesus has always been God. There was never a moment he wasn't deity. But Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Jesus, even though he thought, uh, even though he was equal with God, thought it not robbery to be such, but it says that he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. He became obedient, the Bible says, obedient even unto death. And then the next verse says that through that obedience, even in death, through that servanthood, it says he was exalted and then he was given a name which is above every name. You see, the way to exaltation is through servanthood. Isn't that what the Bible says? It it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that in due season you will be what? Exalted or elevating. It says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the, to the humble. So servanthood is a tangible way in order to demonstrate really humility. I'll talk about this in just a minute. Now, there are some erroneous concepts of serving. Now, the word serving is in our modern culture and vernacular, but I just want to deal with some erroneous concepts because I hear this one all the time, the political concept. I listened to some of our political leaders say this, and I just put it, I I use president, you can slip in senator, congressman, governor, I don't know, just slip in whatever office you want to, but they say, well, I want to be this because I believe in public service. The greatest public service most of them could do for us. We'll just leave it at that. How about that? I mean, I listen, I, I, I listen, I listen to cabinet members and I listen to, to high ranking political offices say, we're just, we're here to serve the public. I just don't, don't patronize me like that. You're not serving me. If you're serving me, you'd get out of your limousine and come shake my hand. Come to our area, come, I mean, what, don't tell me about, sir, you got, you got butlers and maids and you, someone's cooking you dinner every night. No one is cooking my dinner. So don't say you're serving your constituency. Are you following me? You know, public, I'm, I'm just a public servant. No, you're not a public servant. Not at all. Just because you fly, just because you fly to Haiti and stand in front of a camera and tell everybody how bad it is doesn't make you a servant. You you need to roll up your sleeves, stick your hands in some slime, and help some folks. I tell you what irritates me. This I'm I'm on a horse right now. If you haven't sensed the horse anointing, it has arrived. 
Nothing irritates me more than seeing Hollywood celebrities get on TV and they raise money and then they go deduct the time because they can evaluate the time that it would have cost someone to have rented them for something on their tax form and they give nothing. Or they have concerts and they ask all of us to bring their canned goods and they send their canned goods off and we all venerate them like they did something great. All they did was stand before 10,000 and just play their guitar. That ain't serving. Oh, that felt good. There are moments that just it feels good. All right, you're with me now. Religious, there's religious concepts of serving. No joke. I, this is, you know, I've heard this for years and I'm not, I, I, I get it. All right. So, well, I've been called of God. I'm gifted. I'm anointed. So I offer myself for service in this leadership role. <laughs> you know, you'll go offer yourself to clean up a toilet. <sighs> I'm not called to do that. What you think I am? Work yeah, work in the nursery. We're always going, we're always getting on you to work in the, work in the nursery. Because your destiny, destinies are forged there. Sure. You want to lay hands on people, lay hands on some babies. I mean, most of the people we lay hands on down here, they only have about half their life left. That's a whole life left. That's so good. I told you, the horse anointing. Remember that one. There's the civic concept. What about I serve on the board of directors for this humanitarian agency? Well, hey, now listen, now, all these things have an appropriate place. I'm not, I'm making sort of fun or entering in a little anointed sarcasm to just, to just tweak you in understanding that that's not what the Bible really means by serving. They have an important function, important place. Yes, there has to be leaders. Yes, there's rulers. Yes, there's those in authority. Yes. There's gifts, yes, there's anointing, yes, there's influence, yes, to all of these things. But servanthood it has an important preface to getting you there. Now, true servanthood, there's a couple passages here. I don't know that I have the time. I can't read it all to you. Most of you are familiar with the, uh, the parable of the talents. You all know the parable of the talents, the three guys that got ten, five, and one talent, Jesus. And by the way, a talent is not like you play the piano. Are you with me? Well, I've got a talent, you know, I... I do ice sculpting. <laughs> well, that's great. And I'm glad you do Christian ice sculpting. Um, but that's not, a talent is money. All right? It was, it was money. And so this, this, this ruler gave these three guys some money, some talents, and he wanted them to work with it while he was away. And when he got back, then he evaluated their abilities to do something else. In fact, if you read the parable of the minas, which also has to deal with money, it's a really interesting parable, the minas, because the Bible says that when the master came back to check on how they dealt with the minas, they, that he gave them authority, the Bible says, over cities. And, and I always like that passage because sometimes God gives you something to do or he gives you something to serve in that is totally unrelated to your destiny. Through the years, I mean, I, I thought about what God has, has, has put me in at times, and, and I felt to myself, I, I, don't, I, don't, I feel awkward at this. I don't feel like I'm very good at it. it you know, I heard, I've heard the messages about, you know, you, you, you know you're always going to be frustrated unless you're doing what you're called to do. Well, I, yeah, okay, but you know what? When you're serving, you're not doing what you're called to do usually. 
I mean, I mean, you may be called to sweep a floor. God bless you, but uh, but you still got to sweep a floor. Things need vacuumed. House needs picked up. Menial jobs are menial jobs, and you do what you got to do. And and it, it, that parable is helpful to me because it shows me that sometimes you'll be put by God in a situation like. I, I remember one time I'm selling suits at J.C. Penney's, and I'm going, I'm selling suits at J.C. Penney's. I'm not called to sell suits. And you're sitting there, and your heart's just full of destiny, and it's full of God's call, and you're saying, why am I here? Well, I can tell you exactly why I was there. It was to help me interact with people. I'm still kind of dysfunctional at that. Yeah. Say amen. Say amen. But, but, but. But I needed a breakout moment because if you don't interact with people, you can't sell a suit. There's a correlation between your paycheck in suit selling. Yeah, you, 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 you can't not talk to them. You can't stand there and say, pick a suit out and let me know, you know, and there's, you know, they can't. You gotta put it on them. You gotta ask them how it fits, how it lays. You got, you know, you gotta measure things. They come in because something's wrong. You get hollered at, you know. But it had nothing to do with my call. But God uses those very things and they become passports to your destiny. Are you following me? In other words, if you don't get it stamped while you're there, that next door isn't going to open. And so that's, that's servanthood. Well, this is what happens. And I'm going to come back and mention this. In Luke 16, I'm going to come back and, 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 and visit with that one just real quick because we're running out of time in Luke 16. But let me give you just, there's four things I wrote down here real fast. There's probably more, but if you can get these four things down, you're a long way down the road about true servanthood. Let me tell you about what, what is true servanthood. Number one is obscurity. No one knows what you're doing except God. I mean, I'm sure everybody in the room has felt like they've been in an obscure place sometime. And probably, and you might not have liked it. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But I can tell you, true servanthood is when you can do something and no one sees what you're doing except the Lord. I've told the story before, and i got to tell it quickly tonight when I was the custodian. It's it's really a moving story about me just reaching out as I'm dumping trash cans going through the school. At 3 o'clock p.m. is when my shift started. I worked from 3 to 11. And the first hour of uh, my, my... shift work, I would go from classroom to classroom, dumping out garbage cans. And you do that for three or four years. You may only have 30 seconds to 60 seconds in a room, but you begin to develop a relationship at some level with all these teachers. They say, hey, how's it going? How you doing? Some of them treat you right. Some of them treat you wrong. Some of them think that because you're a custodian, you're dumb. Of course, at the time, I had more education than them, and I could speak in Greek fluently. Most of them couldn't speak in English fluently. But because of your job, they perceive that somehow you, you don't have it together. Because it's a menial kind of, you know, custodian. You know when you were in school what you thought of the custodian. So, so anyway, I would go around, and, and some of them were nice, some of them were not so nice. But there was a kindergarten teacher who I, she was just, she was kind of an older lady. And she was, at the end of the day with kindergartners, and she's always screaming at the kids. Every time I would come into the class, she's going, sit down! screaming her head off because it's the end of the day and her name was mrs miller and i called her mean mrs miller 
it was just kind of a joke. I'd come in and go, I oh, mean, Mrs. Miller's at it again. You know, and she goes, you don't even know the kind of day I had <laughs> every day with the kindergartners was, you don't know what kind of day I had today. Make a long story short. She contracted a cancer. She didn't go to church, didn't have a minister, didn't have a pastor. I went to go visit her when she was at the hospital. Everybody that was anybody was in that room. And uh, she was getting a lot of attention from a lot of important people, her principal, other teachers, superintendent was there. And, and I showed up just to see how she was doing. You got to understand, when you've got all these bigwigs there, you don't, you don't give a flip if the custodian showed up. And she really didn't. And I remember getting in the elevator to leave after I had visited her because it just felt like it was the thing to do. I remember in the elevator going, Lord, she didn't care if I was there or not. She don't care about spiritual things. She don't care about you. I don't know why I even did that. I'm just half irritated that she wouldn't hardly say hi to me. There are all these other big shots in there. And, you know, and you know what, I'm, that's what I'm doing in the elevator. And the Holy Ghost came at just that moment and said, she will be your project. Well, you know what? You have cancer for about 12 months, and you'll find out who your friends are. And they slowly drifted away. They couldn't keep up. But the custodian kept coming and coming. And nobody saw me. Nobody was, nobody was keeping tabs on me. Nobody was checking it off. I wasn't reporting to somebody over me getting points that somehow or another this was going to be good on my resume. I mean, no resume you write, visited a teacher with cancer for 12 months. Nobody saw me. That's just not on your resume. There's an audience sometimes of one that we've got to, that we've got to get a hold of. I, I'm, 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 that, has been, that has been seared, baby, in my spirit. That, that the, I, I love everybody in this room. I love you all. I want you to know we dearly love you all. And we aren't joking when we say that we appreciate you and love you and value you. But I want you to hear this, and I hope you would say the same thing, that there are moments I've got to lose sight of all of you, and there's just an audience of one, just one. And I remember visiting her and just sitting there rocking. I mean, she's, she was an older lady. I was in my early 20s. We'd just sit in a rocking chair. There was nothing wrong with this. I mean, she was emaciated by the cancer, and I'm just holding her hand, and we're just rocking. I didn't know what to say. I didn't have any great words of wisdom. I'd barely been saved just a few years. I didn't, I didn't have enough sense to be in a situation like this. The day came, she passed away, and when she passed away, she left word at the school, and she said, I want to be sure that everyone knows that when it's time to do my memorial service, I want Kevin to do the memorial service. I'll never forget the day I walked in. They had it in a gymnasium there at the school she worked at. Everybody that was anybody was in that memorial service that day. All of the school district bigwigs, the superintendent, the assistant superintendent, all the principals she'd worked with through the years, all the teachers that she'd worked with, all the students that she had worked and taught over 25 plus years, and all the parents, and all the little kids, and the gym was packed up, and, and the newspapers had heard about what was going on in her life and, and all that she'd done in the community. So the newspapers had done an article on her, and the TV had picked up on the newspaper articles and the TV cameras were there and they all showed up to hear the custodian. That's how God can take a, a menial moment that nobody sees but one person. 
You're obscure. People make fun of you. They, they think you're stupid and they know nothing about you. You're just in obscurity. But in a split instant, he can pull you out of obscurity and put you in front of thousands. See, that's why you got to get a revelation. I mean, I'm just, this is anointed right now. I mean, when we, when we have some menial tasks around here, you got to get a revelation at that moment and say, that's where my destiny is. I've begun to learn that. It's not easy. It's still not easy to this day, but I have begun to learn through all of this that if I step into something that I can, I, if I can find a way to serve, just let me serve. And if I can find a way to do that, it's amazing what God can begin to do. True servanthood, obscurity, humility. It may be beneath your ability or you may not be called to do it, but you willingly choose to embrace what you are doing. That's humility. Number three, hard work. This is true servanthood. You're not lazy or not lethargic or apathetic about what's before you. You know, I'm just marking off my time. No, if you, if you put your heart into it, God will see. And selfless, it is outside of your control or your benefit. It's something that you don't, you don't, you don't, you, there is no ulterior motive there. I mean, there was, as, as I mentioned, I, you know, this is one moment in my life. It was a big moment, but it was a revelation moment because there wasn't anything I was going to get from this. In fact, her family, just even her husband. Do you know when everybody was, her husband couldn't handle the cancer and he left her. That's just, it's just despicable. True servanthood. Well, there are several things that are revealed. Will you give me five more minutes real quick? What's revealed in the servant test? Here's some things that will begin to be revealed when you serve. Number one is consistency. God wants to know before he gives you something great, can he count on you in something that's small? That's what Luke 16.10 says. If you've never read this, these are verses to underline for your future. It says this, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust in much. In other words, if you can't be on time and you can't work with, you know, a a, a heart to, to sweep a floor, do something menial, why would God give you something big to do? That's what that verse says. If you can't handle what's lesser, you'll never be given that which is greater. Verse 11, it says, If you've not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, even issues of money, who will commit to your trust true riches? A lot of folks don't. I often use that to say, If God can't trust you by giving you resource and you honoring him with 10%, why do you think God would give you an anointing that would break bondages in people's lives? I know it gets quiet because we think God just winks and laughs and somehow we snow him. He's not the one that snowed, my friends. Verse 12, and it says, And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? See, that's, that's some of the issues of servanthood is when you can begin to elevate someone else. Someone said, why do you have overseers and why do you, why do you have them come and why do you do this? Because you know what? As a pastor, I don't get a lot of opportunity anymore. I've got a lot of mileage behind me, but I still got to find ways to elevate, elevate someone else, serve someone else, sow into someone else's vision. What's your vision? All right, I'm going to sow some things there. I'm going to give some things there. I'm going to give some time to some things there. You can count on me, even in the smallest and menial tasks. Secondly, accountability. Servanthood brings accountability. You can correct me and direct me. I mean, if you're, the, if you're the custodian, how many of you know you're the low man on the totem pole? That's right. Everybody's your boss. 
Every room you walk in, every teacher, everybody's your boss. Find out what's in you. Number three, loyalty. You can trust me with the smallest of assignments. Number four, integrity. You can believe in me and what I will do. I always use those parables again of the talents and the guy that gives them the money and he goes away and he comes back to check on him. You know, if you give some people money, if they were in the story and and he went away and then he came back and he's checked on his his, uh, talents, they'd say, what money? You can give me any money. I thought that was a gift. They had integrity. We gave you something. You can work with it. And then finally, longevity. I'm here for the long haul. You can watch me, and I'll not change in character. This is, this is the thing I've learned through the years. And again, it's just hanging around folk. People will fake, they can fake you out for about six months, tops. Some can't go six days. But I mean, if they're really good at it, you, you can really kind of fake your way along for about six months. But you get around somebody for six months or more, and, and who you are and what you're about is going to spill out. Now, that's not necessarily bad. It's just the truth. And, and so longevity is a part of servanthood as well. You begin to find out exactly what's in there. Now, in 2 Timothy 2.2, and I'm going to quit with this. 2 Timothy 2.2, I'm coming in for the landing. Paul's writing to Timothy, and this is what he says. He says, and the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, listen to what he says, commit these to, what does it say? Say it loud, real loud. Now, this is what he says. He says, the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men. He didn't say gifted men, did he? Didn't say skilled, didn't say talented, didn't say anointed. Now, we can maybe assume they were there. I don't know. But he did say the word faithful. Commit these to faithful men, women, people, who will be able to teach others also. That's that's the way of the kingdom. The kingdom is... It's like Paul said in, I think, 1 Corinthians 4 when he says that he, he says, I have been a faithful steward of the mysteries. That out of your faithfulness, you transmit or you impart faithfulness into someone else who in turn gets a hold of it and turns and imparts faithfulness into someone else. You understand that's, that's how it works in the kingdom. And and the sad part of, of it all is, especially in our circles, is at times what we have transmitted, and again, I'm not saying it's not valid, good, right, needful. I'm not saying any of those things. But if all we transfer is get an anointing or get a gift or get this or get that, and that's all we're transferring, then that's all that gets going down. And after a while, we, we aren't profitable. we got to start. We've got to believe in all the power of God all the gifts of God, all the moving of the Holy Spirit. Yes, but, but we in our circles got to get a hold of faithful. Faithful. God doesn't promote you. He can find anybody with a gift. But he can't find many faithful. And that's what he's, that he's looking for. Because when it's all said and done and you walk up before him and when life's done and you're looking just eye to eye with that audience of one, this is all he will say is this. Well done. Thou good and what? Servant.
faithful servant. I'll never forget reading it was Joyner's book on the final harvest when he said, we're going, to, we're, we're going to be absolutely blown away when we see who's up close to the throne. People we never knew. Obscure, menial servants of the Lord will be up real close. And the big dogs will be outside the gate. My calling is to renew people's minds under him so that we begin to hear that. The greatest thing I can do is to raise up a congregation of people who will stand before the Lord and he says, well done, good and faithful servants. Stand with me. Father, I thank you tonight that you come with great revelation and great power and that really you have a great plan for everyone in this room. Lord, when we just gave this series a title, From Dreams to Destiny, Lord, that really is your heart. You want to give people a dream, a vision of a great future. You have that. Lord, Trace's favorite verses, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but to, to prosper you, to put you in a land, to give you a future. Lord, that's your heart and that's your will. And your will for everyone in this room is to be of great impact and great influence. Lord, you haven't called us just to be uh, just, uh, um, you know, on the other side of the track and, and hidden under a bushel. You're wanting, you're wanting to bring forth something. But, Lord, the thing that you want to bring forth are servants. You said there's not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise according to the flesh. But you'll bring forth the broken and the faithful. You'll bring forth the servants. So, Lord, I pray tonight that for each one that's here, I pray that if they find themselves in a menial, obscure place, that, Lord, they wouldn't despise it, but they would begin to see that it could be the very positioning they're supposed to be in for God to open up an amazing door like you did for Joseph. Lord, help us to not just... Not just jump in the natural, but help us to see beyond our moments. See beyond the suits and the mannequins and the cash registers and all the things, Lord, that seem so distant from your plan for our life. Help us to see that really it's a part of your plan for our lives. And I thank you, Lord, that you're doing it and you're going to raise up a strong and mighty army out of servants. And we just love you tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, you got to give the Lord a hand clap on that. Even though you say, ouch, it's still good. Amen. All right, guys. We're going to see you on the Lord's Day. It's going to be a great day. You are released.